The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm Paul Rudy, and today I'm here with uh, some of my regular guests, uh, Dr. Fred Gertz. I'll get to you. You're on the uh, line one, Dr. Fred. I'll pick you up in a minute, but Dr. Fred, and then he came from where you came from, Paul. He's in Dallas. You came up here from Dallas area. Yeah, we switched places. And but so we'll, we'll get Dr. Fred on, so you guys swap places. And of course... We have special guests. Well, I'm just talking about Paul there from uh, Plano, Texas, office uh, for Rudy Wealth. He's one of Investopedia's top 100 most influential vi- advisors in America and was recently quoted in the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Dallas Morning News, and seemed like about another 100. So we'll get to talking about that in a little bit. We also have uh, Ryan Repko with us. Good morning, right. and I have to say good morning to uh, my two-and-a-half-year-old. He asked me to say good morning, Cooper, so good morning, oh, Cooper. Oh, uh, he'll want to hear Ruru, too. That's what he calls me, Ruru. And um, Uncle Paw Paw. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I'm glad he's listening. That makes one. <laughs> so you can call in with your questions at uh, 356-9397 or text us at the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. Uh, we also want to welcome those tuning in on Facebook Live. Is the Facebook Live working, Ryan? Great. It's working. So thumbs up on that one. So unfortunately, people have to see me. You know, they'll know why I'm on radio and not TV. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Let's see if I can actually get Dr. Fred on the line and keep him on the line, more importantly. Dr. Fred, are you there? I'm here. I'm taking the uh, the the Plano chair from... uh for Paul. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You, we could have gone to the office. Uh, I'm going to press this one more time and hope that you're still on there, Dr. Fred. I'm going to test it in case anybody else calls. All right. I think you have, you're have you on there full time now. So, again, we're uh, text us at 3515357 on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line. Call us at 3569397. No shortage of things to talk about today. But, Dr. Fred, as long as I have you on, it, I mean, it's a, a replay, guys. It's continues to mostly point to positive growth uh sure would seem to me dr fred that uh that supports the case with you know uh increasing corporate profits economic growth retail sales all just about everywhere you look things are looking up uh, pretty rosy um it would seem that support the case for continued bull market to me you don't have to agree with that one but uh further red uh, fed rate hi- rate hikes probably in the works so. Right. I think that uh, the, the uh, continuation is going to uh, uh, go on a pace now that uh, the, the, the rate heists have uh, come into play now and can, will continue. Uh, today, obviously, it's an interesting day with the uh, Dow down so far, but uh, the, the story today is slightly different from a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, the uh, explanation was that uh, the market was afraid of rising interest rates and so on today, it's a little bit different and maybe a little bit contradictory to uh, the true story, and that is that the uh, uh, earnings are not as strong as they have been in the past, especially with the Caterpillar and a couple other places. So there's always a story, uh, but unfortunately, the story is usually after the fact, right. not before the fact. But again, I think the economy continues strong, but we've said many times that there is a kind of disconnect between the economy and the market just because the economy is strong doesn't necessarily mean the market's going to go up because that may already have been incorporated into asset prices. But again, uh, there's nothing particularly bad on the horizon uh, for the, the economy, aside from the things we already know about, which is the, the trade issues and things of that sort that have been going on for quite a long time. It would uh, sure seem that the odds of a recession anytime really soon is pretty low, probably less than 10%, to me at least. And, it, and the reason I bring that up is I always think of a, when I think of a bear market in the stock market, guys, which is a, defined as a 20% broad market decline, uh, I always think of a recession associated with those. So that's, that's really the only reason I keep bringing this up. I keep, I, I'm still not seeing any signs of a recession, maybe until early as midnight uh, 2019. Um, 
of course nobody knows it's just if you just look at the inverted yield or it's not inverted yield curve you just look at all the leading indicators and all the, uh, the you know they seem to suggest that there's quite a bit of lag time before a recession would be on us and therefore i don't have any particular concern you buy a bear market and, and it just strikes me guys and and fred uh you know the market last week was down five or six percent uh you know from from its peak and it's you know we had a markets in turmoil show on cnbc and i'm i'm thinking that is such a normal part of the process of if you want to own if you want to earn the premium returns that the ownership of the great companies in america has historically provided um boy going through a five or six or a ten percent that's pretty regular affair the average intra-year decline is about 14 percent it's just amazing to me how people get so excitable the first time you see a four or five or six percent decline and and it just it right. never changes and that's that's surprising ryan it's, it's always a question i'm sure in people's mind is this a, a one-time kind of of uh, downturn or is it kind of kind of a move in the opposite direction you never know until after the fact but again uh we've had uh close to 10 years now of uh, pretty steady growth so it's not unusual to have a a kind of uh, whether you want to call it correction or whatever at, at this point it's just a it's a it's interesting to watch the emotion quickly build um of course this is why i've been saying guys and we've been practicing dollar cost averaging at Rudy Wealth, where we've you know we've taken on an awful lot of new clients this year again, and uh, for the most part, we've been following what I call the dollar cost averaging uh, approach, which uh, typically means uh, if someone's going to be just pick an allocation, sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds, we'll make a pretty substantial down payment for the stock market portion, uh, as much as half or or more, and then we'll dollar cost average on monthly increments for the next six to 12 months and we're happy and willing to speed it up on any declines like we've been experienced last week or this week um when i get back to the office one of the things we'll do is say okay who are we dollar get me the dollar cost averaging list and we may speed up one more month so there are there are for the accumulators and people that are dollar cost averaging into this it's certainly a welcome event so right and also as a guy we've talked many times about dollar cost averaging from the strict kind of mathematical standpoint, it may not be the best strategy, but from a psychological standpoint, it makes it easier to uh, make some big changes. So I think people probably who have uh, gone in the last couple of months are happy about that. Maybe people that went in uh, several years ago may not be happy, but again, psychologically, it makes it easier to uh, go in the right direction. And at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, most of the problems I see that walk into my office uh, from a prospective client standpoint, it's a lot of times it's due to just the, uh, the it's the emotional issue of investing that is can derail a perfectly good plan. And and you're right, Fred. Dollar cost averaging is not really the ideal. Uh, if you're if you're to say I want to maximize my return over my lifetime, you probably wouldn't dollar cost average. Although it's probably not going to make that big of a difference, and that's just simply because. 75% of the time a year from now, the market would be higher as opposed to, you know, to where it is today as opposed to lower. So Yeah, but dollar cost average also makes it easier for people to make the right decision as opposed to not getting in at all. Uh, dollar cost average is a very good alternative. I think for some people, it's the only way they can make it out alive, um, it, it, you know, from my experience. Uh, a lot of times uh, a, a, a client will need perhaps more of a stock market allocation than they might have ever thought that they would have entertained. And the only way to get them there is through dollar cost averaging. So we're always managing right. the emotional side of the, the relationship because ultimately that drives much of people's behavior when it comes to investing. And then it's that behavior, if it's proper or improper, that's going to determine their yeah. lifetime outcome. So a uh, question, have you gotten any, uh, any calls about people your clients being worried about this at the, the last month or so, or is this a, you got the literally zero. To, uh, to uh, there's right. a couple things going on, Fred. Uh, I, I addressed one of them in the newsletter that if you're in a globally diversified portfolio, and that's how we invest, um, you're probably disappointed relative to if you just look at the standard and poor 500 index. Uh, right. So year to date, or even in the last few years. Uh, but the other thing is that we have, when we get, 
really virtually no commentary about that from our clients. They understand that diversification means that that's just the way it works sometimes. And it still means diversification is working. But when you get into these declines of 5 or 10%, it really takes much more than that before we'll hear from our clients, if even then. Uh, I remember in 2016 when we started out the year uh, with a lot of newspapers saying, it's the worst first six weeks in stock market history. Might have gotten one or two from my recollection people concerned at that point. Now, it doesn't mean more of them weren't concerned. It's just that they didn't communicate it, mainly because I've, I've approached and embrace this idea of how how we deal with investing from an emotional standpoint is really a biggest part of the driving force of the determinant between success and failure. And so I think if we've done anything right at Rudy Wealth Management, we've we've really educated our clients on the pros and the cons to everything. And the, and, and the fact that you, you really never eliminate risk, you're always just trading risk. You're trading one risk off for another. And I really... If, I, if we spend more time on anything, it's that. It's really to educate in a way that makes our clients emotionally much more prepared than the average investor, I think. So knock on wood, we really haven't had any. Maybe we'll get some today. I doubt it, um, uh, but it's always possible. Usually the clients will say, well, we already know what you're going to say, Paul. <laughs> you know, that, that your plan's fine. Uh, it's pretty much irrelevant, uh, the fact that we're going through this temporary decline amongst a permanent uptrend. And it's just, it's a, again, corrections are necessary. Um, it, and it, my observation is it's just interesting what people, people, no matter what, are caught by surprise every time the market goes down 5 or 10%. It's like living in Illinois my whole life as I have and being surprised that it's cold in January in Illinois. Yes, right. And, and it, right. I think it just goes back to the fact that people have very short-term financial memories, and I, I think we see that. And so I think it's why we reinforce so uh, frequently the importance of a long-term memory about history of investing, and that these these types of declines are normal; they're to be expected. They're they're the reason we get the premium returns right. because there has to be some you know quote unquote risk. Otherwise, you would have stable bond-like returns. So. So it's a. You know, I've said many a times, and I've certainly written more times than I care to that you know you invest in the great companies of America and the world, usually for one reason, you want a higher expected return of your portfolio than bonds, as the example. And in order, and when you do that, you are put going, you are signing on for unpredictability of your outcome in the near term. And it's if you want, and that to me is why we've received the premium returns that the owners of the great companies of America and the world have earned compared to the people that lend them money by buying their bonds. And it's a wider margin than people think because um, you have to really consider inflation. And when you take inflation into consideration, you find out that you know stocks have earned five to seven times more than the after-tax, after-inflation return of bonds. So premium returns come with premium fluctuation it's a they're joined at the hip and uh and easy for us to say guys but when you see 10 percent of your portfolio potentially at least the stock market portion temporarily or seemingly disappear one of the things i noticed and then we're going to move on and i, I wondered and maybe fred you can even weigh in on this um we did have one client actually that did was concerned a, a fairly new client and I was talking to my son, David, about it. And I have noticed over my 35 years that and most of our clients are the millionaire next door types. Hardworking people, never really shot the light outs on income. They made modest incomes, but they were frugal. They saved, they invested, they allocated properly. They did everything right. But when their million-dollar portfolio is down $50,000, it's really common to think of how many years. I mean, I had to work a year to earn $50,000, and I just saw 50000 seemingly disappear in the last five days. And I think these are the, some of these issues that when, you, when you've spent a lifetime working hard, earning thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand, 60000 and you're the millionaire next door, and suddenly in a week's time, maybe thirty or $40,000 seemingly disappears, and you naturally think about, I used to have to work one full year to get that amount of money. And I think that's that sinks in, too, sometimes. And it magnifies the effect a little bit. I, th I think it's, it's right, not, yeah. it's not think percentages, it's dollars. Yes, Fred? 
uh, sometimes people, like like you're saying, they don't take into account the, uh, the upside because, uh, as we talked about uh, maybe a month ago or so, uh, in the old days, uh, people didn't think about uh, there being much of a difference between stocks and bonds. In fact, like pension funds, I didn't really get heavily into equity until about 1980. So the, the equity premium, the idea that you, as uh, as Ryan said, you get something uh, back for the risk you take is not, not really a thing that most people have thought about until the last uh, several decades. I, I think you're right, because uh, they clearly they didn't even have the data until really the early 70s, late 60s, to, to actually kind of theorize and actually go into the data and find out what the expected return and historical returns have been. So it's just one of those things that we have to deal with. Uh, if you want the premium returns that historically, that uh, the ownership of the great companies have historically provided, and again, this is where we get to say, we don't know what returns in the future are going to be, and past performance isn't necessarily an indication, but uh, some people think it sort of is, and it at least gives you some framework to operate from. Premium fluctuation and premium returns go hand in hand, and they're basically two sides of one coin. So. People really, in a, in a, you almost have to, there's a saying when it comes to the Navy SEALs and in the military, I'm told it says, embrace the suck. And they say, how do you make it, you know, through all that SEAL training and all the, you know, gruesome training that you have to go through that most people can't even do. And they say, because it really sucks, but you have to embrace the suck. And I don't even know if that's, an, that's certainly not an eloquent statement for me to make. But I kind of get it. In other words, I can relate that to investing. Embrace the idea of premium fluctuation in the broad stock market. It's precisely the reason you get the lifetime benefits that inure to the people that have the faith, patience, and discipline to hold on as owners as opposed to lenders. Yeah, and I guess another way to kind of like you alluded to earlier, you know, when people have that $50,000 that goes away and it used to be a year of their earnings, Yes, that's unfortunate, but they can start kind of looking at the positive side. Wow, you know, I've really accumulated so much that uh. I can lose enough in a week, and it's about the same that I used to have to earn in a year. And even though that's unfortunate, it's really kind of cool to see that you've accumulated that much wealth, that the swings are that big. That's why when I hear people talk about it's impossible to become the millionaire next door these days, everything's harder, everything's harder, it's really the same formula. Uh, these are not high earners. These are people that live frugally. They live beyond, you know, below their means. They invest their difference in appreciating assets. Uh, they don't go on the Facebook vacations. They don't buy a new car every three years. They still tend to live in the same house or one of the, you know, one or two houses in from their life. And uh, and it's incredible to meet with hardworking people that are sixty years old or so, and they're looking down at a piece of paper that says they have a million dollars or so uh and it's almost it's almost in disbelief that okay well that's good right that's good it's almost is what they have to say <laughs> uh until we breathe life into it and we show them look that combined with your social security and your pension fund if you have one here's what it really means to you in terms of lifestyle over the next two to three decades of your life that's when the that's when the disbelief almost really shows up for the most part is so often when we tell people what they can spend over the next two to three decades in retirement, very frequently it's more than they took home for all their hard work in their last year of work. And it, there's, a, there's some disbelief that goes on there. Oftentimes they'll, they'll say it. They'll say, I see your numbers. I see what you did. I see the planning. I just don't believe it. I don't know how it's possible. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I need to see the numbers behind the numbers. Right. If they ask, we'll be happy to show it to them. But a lot of it's because... When you really start thinking about when we're working, we're usually saving money in our 401k plan. We're paying payroll taxes. We're paying higher federal income taxes than most mm -hmm. retirees are going to pay in retirement. You can earn a lot of money as a retiree uh, in the United States of America. Uh, Paul and I were talking about this on uh, the way to the office this morning. I said, Paul, you can, you can earn an awful lot of money. You could be a millionaire next door, have a lifestyle of 60, 70, 80,000 a year, and pay a very, very low tax, uh, be in a very low tax bracket, and have a very low, low effective tax rate. And then in the state of Illinois, uh, some people would consider the state of Illinois, Dr. Fred, not all that tax-friendly, but for retirees, I would think that the state of Illinois would be one of the most uh, 
tax-friendly states for the retirees. Am I missing anything on that, Fred? I don't think so. As long as your retirement income is coming from a pension or a uh, 401k, 403b, 457 plan, it's probably as uh, generous as, as any state in the country. So you can earn you can earn an awful lot of in, you can have an awful lot of let's not call it income lifestyle spending and live in the state of Illinois and have a very low federal tax bracket and very low state tax bracket very tax you know payment and uh, very frequently you can do Roth conversions on the first few years of retirement and make that even better guys I want to move uh, to uh, to a, a, a topic of and I think one of you guys wrote. Uh, a blog on that, didn't you? That that was me. Is that yep. you? Uh, why people essentially choose a different advisor? Or they go from one advisor to another. And now in this town, there's plenty of good options, as we know. And uh, and for a lot of people, they choose an advisor because they have a, they have this feeling that somehow it's going to save them money and time. It's going to maybe save them money and mistakes, and it's probably going to earn them potentially potentially more money than doing it themselves. Um, but you recently wrote that blog, uh, most of the common reasons why we see people uh, switch advisors. The first is they didn't build a plan. I mean, I, have, I don't think I've had, you know, we get new clients frequently. I mean, it's pretty steady flow of clients. Uh, we had our best years so far this year, and the year's not over. And to a person, every one of them that walked in and switched advisors to us, it, they did not have a financial plan. Uh, expand on that a little bit. Well, people actually used to think the job of of a financial advisor was really more to pick investment opportunities, you know, maybe pick the right stocks or choose when to be invested in the market versus when in bonds. And over time, you know, as more research came out and the world basically realized there's not really a lot of value, most people, the vast majority, do not create value picking stocks and timing the market. People really had to shift. Financial advisors basically had to learn that their value was not providing an investment portfolio or some special investment solution so much as it was building actual plans that incorporated all the client's goals and then using an investment portfolio to achieve those goals. So in that way, is, uh, so, the, so it sounds like the investment portfolio becomes a slave to the plan and nothing more than that. Yeah, I prefer the word servant. That's a little <laughs> PR uh, communications guy coming out there. But yes, yeah, so I would say that it is a servant to the plan. Um, and I would just say that, you know, a lot of advisors... Now you can't tell the difference between a guy who's almost 60 and someone who's almost I was going to say, I was just raised in a slightly different world, I guess. Um, but moral of the story is everyone has a purpose for their money, and their finances should be managed according to that purpose. So one of the times people walk through our doors is because their previous advisor just kind of arbitrarily invested their money. Because if you didn't build a plan for a client, your investment solution, it has to be completely arbitrary. It's based on whatever you think it should be. It's not pointed at anything. Right. I think Ryan wants to weigh in on that. And I think a lot of times that's because you you see these uh, very familiar uh, risk tolerance scores. Tell me, Mr. Client, Mrs. Client, how much risk do you want to take? Right. And so many people say, well, I really don't want to take risk. This is my lifestyle. I didn't walk in here. I didn't walk in here to take risk. And so they arbitrarily assign these risk scores to you and you say, oh, okay, I I only want to assume 50%, 40% risk of my portfolio, which is, is... arbitrary for most and then they put you in a portfolio that uh, guarantees essentially that low that you're going to visit that exactly so then they come to us so they come to a similar advisor and they're experiencing i didn't see great returns as well there's a reason for that and it's they didn't even know what to expect perhaps sure and fred you've you're on the have been and probably currently and i think you're currently on the board of some endowments and pension funds etc they would never not have a, have you ever had have you ever been involved with a an institutional type of client that didn't have a, in other words a financial plan it may not have been called a financial plan but it was an investment policy statement um, ever run into one that didn't have that well, I guess I have but uh, it doesn't it has one now <laughs> but in terms of surety we've always had a a plan and uh, the you know the plan has been. A uh, pretty straightforward one, and uh, beginning with uh, obviously allocation to equity and uh, passive investment. So a plan is very, very important. Uh, it's not quite the same thing because you also have to have a saving side for your individual uh, sure. planning. But for sure, it's a little bit different. But 
clearly we have a plan. One of the challenges, though, is to have a, a consistent plan because with a, a board, the board doesn't stay the same forever if they have people coming and going. So it's very important to get the uh, people to buy into a long-term kind of plan, which is not a problem for an individual. They have to just uh, maintain the course. My point, guys, was, you know, no institutional investor would never operate without a plan. Their money is going to be aligned with some type of investment policy statement. It's going to be pointed at a target. And uh, and when I get to the next one, I think it somehow has must be related to that first one, Ryan. The next one that you wrote, Paul, was uh, they're disappointed, uh, uh, people being disappointed with the investment solution they were offered. And a lot of times that's because it was not really pointed at something. And so they don't even know if they should be happy or if they should be unhappy. Certainly. And I think it can fall in a couple of different buckets and why people could be disappointed in their investments that they had. Uh, one might be they're just not truly educated in the way the the markets work that you brought up any given year, the intra year decline can be 14%. Well, if you don't know that, and your portfolio drops 14% in a, in a period of the year, and you look at your account balance, you say, well, certainly my advisor is not paying attention or, right. or picking the wrong uh, investments. But they may not know that very simply, that's just part of the formula. You you right. have to come to expect that. So education is a big piece of it. Um, and what do you do for your clients up front? Did you make them taste that, so to speak? I think what uh, when we speak from our our side of things, we ad- we advise our clients on here's here's a brief background on how markets work. Here's here's the philosophies that successful investors have followed, and then more often than not, reiterating that time and time again because so many times. You hear something, it goes in, it sits for about five minutes, and it goes out, and it's useless again. And it seems like on your one-page kind of investment policy statement that you give clients, that we give to all of our clients, sometimes it's two, it's a little appendix, but it seems like you run them through the last three bear markets Mm -hmm. of what this portfolio, how it behaved, and it's kind of a story of the good and the bad and the ugly. you know, one of them, of course, is 2008, 2009. And I think, you know, you make them basically face it and say, look, well, here's the portfolio that is aligned with your plan. As you said, Paul, it's a servant to your plan. See, I'm learning. <laughs> and, uh, but there's no free lunch here. And once again, and you make them sign it. We all make them sign it. They sign off that they read this and they realize, look, here's the deal. If, if this is the beginning of 2008 and we don't know it, this is what your experience might have looked like. If it was 2000 to 2003, a much different type of bear market, this is what it would have looked like. Uh, and, and, and so you take them through. And then 2016 was, in my view, a bear market, and we kind of show them what that one would look like. So it's really important to show them what is really normal ahead of time because it never feels normal when it's happening to you in real time certainly i think beyond the educational side though you know an unfortunate thing that we do tend to see not often but you know the people who paid advice to this advisor i paid for advice from this advisor actually ended up doing worse than they would have done by themselves you know maybe the advisor invested some proprietary investment product that he got a commission on and it didn't work out. Or, yeah, or they just didn't know what they were doing. They invested all their money in one stock or something like that. I mean, you don't think this stuff happens because you think, gosh, if someone's a financial advisor, they must be smart. But with any profession, there is a range of quality in anyone who calls themselves a financial advisor. And, you know, just like with medicine, you kind of want to choose the best one because you can end up getting harmed if you choose the wrong guy because financial advisor in and of itself is not a credential. But, but that's right. hard, Paul. I mean, we all say that, and we say it's really important to pick an advisor. It's, the most important thing is pick a really good one. I, I, yet what we do is, a, is, is retirement planning and investment advisory capacity. It's basically it's, you're selling the invisible. You can't prove anything. Uh, you can't even draw too much uh, from a track record uh, and make any inferences from it. Uh, so th- I think that is kind of this paradox. We know we w- it's, it, it's the criticism I have of the industry, if I can digress a little bit, is it isn't the same as medicine. If you go to, if, if you're having heartburn or you're feeling that your heart may be out of whack and you go to a cardiologist, you could probably in America in any decent sized town and may, maybe even in small towns, uh, you know, uh, you're, they're probably not going to tell you it's something wrong with your foot. 
You see what I mean? They, they, there may be disagreement amongst three cardiologists that the reason for your heart pain or, or, or feelings, but they're all going to be really close. They're not going to diagnose it completely wrong because they've all been through four years of college. They've been through medical school, which is three or four, four years. Then they typically have done some type of, for many of them, another two or three year more stent. They've passed rigorous exams. They, 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 they all have at least a real a similar, you're going to get similar answers. I think when it comes to financial advice, and I think this is why we, we have excelled because I think there is so much disappointment out there, sometimes for the right reasons, sometimes for the wrong reasons, but everybody wants to pick the, the best advisor in a town. It's how do you do that? And, and that brings up a great point, and Paul Jr. alluded it to it too, is like you say, how could a financial advisor give me advice like this? How could they do something that could hurt me? Well, it's not a lock, but you can look for a better financial advisor by looking to see what certifications that they hold. And the term itself, financial advisor, I find to be terribly misleading because essentially anybody can use that name. It is not a designation by any term. So if you work uh, for an investment firm, you can be a financial advisor. If you work at insurance company selling insurance, you can be called an investment advisor. So there's no standard advisor, or a financial yeah. advisor, exactly. And so one thing that you can do um, is look for folks who have gone out and seeked additional education and certification. So you could be searching for someone who's a certified financial planner, a CFP, or a retirement income certified professional, RICP. And I, I have to mention that here at Rudy Wealth, uh, we have CF, uh, CFPs and RICP advisors on staff because we value the certification and the knowledge because it provides better advice for clients. I think you're right, uh, and, there, and there are certainly others in town that carry the same credentials or more. Uh, Charter Financial Analyst is another strong one. Uh, I think for people that are looking for more retirement planning uh, issues, you might want to think of the certified financial planner type. Uh, CFAs are, tend to be more portfolio-oriented, in my experience. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's a painting with a broad brush. I, I recognize that. And well, and there are even specific smaller designations. For example, people who specialize in divorce financial planning. So right. you can really seek out a credential that's very specific to your financial situation. But again, uh, just to, to, to be real uh, to our listeners here, I after 35 years, I recognize the difficulty in finding that right financial advisor. You really need to talk to three or four of them on the front end. That's what I would encourage you to do because you're going to hear different. You're going to get different flavors, and uh, one of them is going to probably click. And sometimes it's that gut feeling alone uh, is, is going to serve you well. The next one, though, is lack of communication, Paul, uh, or either one you want to tie in on that. Um, yeah, that ties in with the first two because think about it. If your financial advisor didn't make a plan or if your investment somehow disappointed you, they're not going to reach out to tell you about it that often. So I think uh, um, I just think that's one of the things that people need to look out for. You know, if all of a sudden your financial advisor just kind of disappears or appears to be ducking you because maybe there's an inconvenient truth that you guys have to discuss. That's a red flag. You know, it's now I have to explain that even with us, there are some clients that we don't see every month or every six months because their plan is so low maintenance that everything is on track. Now we reach out a couple of times a year, but what you're saying is a lot of times they just they're happy and they don't really have any particular need to come in and talk to you yeah i should but, specify we don't do a whole meeting but we do reach but, out but, but lack of communication is certainly one of the things i hear a lot um when people hear about our, our touch points and how we do that they're like, well we're not we're not getting that um we're not the only ones that excel in that there's others so so we don't want to i don't want anybody to think that we've any that we think we've cornered the market on that but certainly one of the things you hear about uh, the next one, compensation structure. Paul, why would uh, that cause someone to make a change? Usually because they don't know what it is. Yeah, well, that's one thing. Or if they just are somewhat suspicious that they might be getting slightly conflicted advice because of the way that their advisor is compensated. And this isn't as big of a deal as it used to be. I mean, the financial advice industry as a whole has come a long way as far as removing conflicts of interest. But uh, there are still some people out there who can receive commissions on certain investment products that they sell you. And that's an unavoidable conflict of interest. And if you think you've been sold an investment product because your broker or insurance person received a commission on it, 
you have a right to be skeptical. And a lot of times your skepticism is justified. Yeah, and uh, I haven't had anybody yet that bought product that ultimately they regret that didn't sort of on the front end get a bad vibe. And that kind of leads into the next one I see that you put on there. Sometimes it's just a gut feeling you're getting that maybe this isn't working the best for me. Maybe there's something, maybe I can't put my finger on it, but sometimes it's, I really don't know what I'm paying, which gets into your compensation. Uh, I don't know what I should be paying. I don't know if my advisor is telling me to do something because it's in my best interest or theirs. There's something in that gut feeling. Um, I think it's one of the more important ones. I agree. I think that so much of how people choose an advisor or maybe stay with an advisor is based on the comfort level that they feel they have with speaking with someone and being honest and open because let's let's just say it as it is. Financial advisory business is a very personal business. It is it is a very touchy-feely communication-based business if you're doing it right. You need to know all the the intricacies and the ins and outs of a, per, a person's financial life if you're going to do them justice even their personality what makes them tick how they feel about debt you know how they grew up around money uh you know how did they meet their spouse you know how how do you choose that your career that you're in what what all these are very gives you this a much more complete picture of what makes somebody tick because i i sometimes people are surprised by this but i but it, but I believe it's true in many, many cases. I know more about my clients than most people's kids do. Probably more than anybody else knows about them. I'm sure there's personal things I don't know about. But overall, their overall condition of what makes them tick, I generally, I feel comfortable saying that I know more about my clients than most of their, most anybody else. And I think that that goes to say that so many times we see that parents haven't necessarily had the financial conversations with kids it's it for a long time has been such a like a a no discussion topic especially the people if you look at people in their 60s or 70s today or 80s look they grew up in the shadows of the depression people just didn't really broad brushing here didn't talk about money uh just this is something they didn't do there was this they just just wasn't done culturally i'm sensing that's changing with the 40 and 50 and 60 year old that walk that walk in the door today they're much more inclined to at least more than maybe the generation before shared with their kids but i think this comfort level with an advisor also shows up when you think about sort of the emotional role that an advisor plays right. where they have to they have to be the person that you trust when you know, when everything's going wrong in the market, you have to trust their advice and talk them, you know, trust that they will keep you from making a big mistake. And this is one of those things that, I mean, I'm going to sell against myself a little bit here, but, you know, it's something I'm up against as a small advisor because let's think about it. If I'm across the table from a 65-year-old, am I going to be as powerful saying, I, you know, I know this is going to get better. I've studied my history, you know, it's temporary. Am I going to be as effective as someone like you, yeah, who has been in the business for thirty-five years and can say I've seen this all before? They're, you know, you're kind I remember of the same when the Dow was at a thousand. Yeah. Uh, I remember then it went to fifteen hundred, not not fifteen thousand, fifteen hundred, and everybody told me the stock market was overvalued and they couldn't invest. But more importantly, it's when uh, it's usually out of a crisis mode, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and the clients are to a point, and I face this every day for a while in 2008 and 2009 uh, clients would walk in they're they're petrified uh, they've seen a significant decline in their investment portfolio um, they feel like if it continues they're going to end up going broke and lose their financial independence and dignity and they come in basically begging and pleading for me to allow them to make the biggest mistake that I think they'll ever make in their life and it's that ability to look them square in the eye and say look I get it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you about being in it for the long term. We're way beyond that. Okay. But look, we're still dealing with another couple of decades ahead of us. And it's perfectly okay to feel the way you feel. I'm not telling you that your fears are not warranted. I'm not telling you it's not going to get worse before it gets better. I can't tell you when it's going to get better. I can't tell you how it's going to get better. And I can't tell you, you know, when it's going to get better. Only then it, that it will. But I can tell you this, dear client, and look them square in the eyes and say, if you, if I let you do what you want to do, and translation, I'm scared, I want to take money out of the stock market and put it in safe stuff, 
I personally think that will be the biggest financial mistake you'll ever make in your life. And I think it will lead to eternal sadness. And you got to mean it when you say it. And I meant it. And they knew that if they wanted to do what they wanted to do, they had to go find another advisor. It's that, it's that type of relationship. That doesn't come easily. That comes through time. It comes through asking the right questions. It comes from making, understanding how they grew up, how they feel about money. Uh, and that's, that's how we, you know, sometimes that's, you know, that's when you know. That, that's that. I always tell clients on the front end, there comes that pivotal moment. It's coming. I don't know if it's two years from now or 12 years from now, but it's coming. And it may be from exa- irrational exuberance or it may be from pure panic, but it's coming. And you will utter these four words, but this time it's different, and I will utter four words, and my four words are different. It's this too shall pass. And whichever of those four words you decide to listen to at that time is going to determine your lifetime outcome. So that's enough on the touchy-feeling stuff. Kind of the final thing on that, Paul. Uh, And then I want to ask Fred. Fred, here's what I'm going to ask you after this question. If you were going to, and Fred doesn't need a financial advisor, he's... You know, Fred could teach this stuff, right? <laughs> In all seriousness, Fred's, you know, extremely, extremely smart when it comes to this. But I'm going to ask Fred how in Champaign-Urbana he would go about, if someone that passed a law that you have to find a financial advisor by law, how you would go about doing that. I'll let, first, Fred, I'll let you think about that. But your last one, Paul, was seeking a specialist. A lot of times people come to us just because they're seeking a certain specialty. Yeah, and it's often the case that an advisor can really kind of get you from, you know, point one to point two, but maybe, you know, points three through ten are a little more difficult for them. Uh, We see this a lot because we specialize in retirement planning, and your situation before retirement is fairly straightforward. You're saving, you may have some goals, but once you start thinking about transitioning into retirement and how are you going to turn this portfolio into an income that you can't outlive, that's when it really starts to get complicated for people, and that's when sometimes it gets out of the hands of a traditional advisor, and you may need to seek a specialist in, say, retirement. Now, I just, I'm using retirement as an example, but like I, I used the divorce example earlier, there are advisors that specialize in that. So, long story short, you know, people, when they start wrestling with decisions, you know, that are more complicated and more specific to them, and they may realize that their advisor does not quite have the expertise that aligns with, it doesn't mean that their advisor isn't an expert, it's just that their specific expertise doesn't align with their needs. That's often when they decide to go out and seek a specialist. I think a lot of times where people relate to us, because we only deal with retirement planning, is I think they could instantly pick up on the fact that, oh, these guys... They, they've been there and done this. This is what they do. Uh, and I, I think that instantly make there's that kind of that comfort factor of, oh, okay, he gets that. Oh, he gets that too. Well, I got these income streams, but they're not coming for four or five years. I, I understand that one, and here's how we deal with that. And what about this? Um, so I think that specialty is, I, 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 in our industry, they say you're, you really should be a niche. You should, you should define your niche. Ours is rather broad, I think, uh, retirement planning, but it's retirement planning only. Um, for people that are near retirement or in retirement, but seeking a specialist. So, Dr. Fred, uh, you know, you're, you're not with our firm. Uh, well, I don't expect you to say I, I would hire Rudy Wealth, of course. I would, I would expect you not to say that. Uh, but how, just generically, how would you go about, or how would you suggest people go, what are the one or two or three things they do to go find that advisor? Well, I'm in a, in a situation where I know what I want. So uh, the first thing I'd want would be someone who's obviously uh, a fiduciary, uh, uh, not a uh, not selling products. The second thing, which probably a, a, a new investor might not uh, uh, be aware of, I'd be uh, someone who's strongly committed to uh, passive investment and the long-term kind of view. So those are things that someone might not uh, necessarily know about if they were uh, a kind of an average investor. The other thing, certainly in my uh, stage of life, I'd want someone who also is very uh, skilled in, in terms of, uh, of managing details maybe later on when I don't want to do it myself. So I have a general philosophy, again, which would be, I think, the same as yours, uh, uh, passive investment, low fees, that kind of thing and uh, taking advantage of tax uh, considerations. So again, 
uh, that, that's where I would look at this point. And so you would just, uh, if you might uh, visit with a few advisors and just ask those kind of pointed questions. How do you feel about yeah, but I don't it? Wanna, but I, I think, again, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, inflating my own situation, but uh, I know what I want exactly. Sure. And I think a, a typical advisor might not, uh, might not do that. But yeah. the other thing I was going to mention, uh, based on what you were talking about a few minutes ago, that it's very hard to... Uh, maintain discipline. Uh, I didn't maintain uh, the kind of discipline that uh, we talked about during the 2008-2009 uh, uh, downturn. Um, I certainly didn't sell, but I didn't rebalance into stocks at that point. So if I'd done that, I'd be even better off now. That's a very, been a very difficult kind of thing to do in uh, early 2009, and that is to buy more stock when the sure. market's going, going down. Well, you know, as strongly as I feel about this, it, was, it wasn't many clients that I could even convince. I could save them from selling, but there weren't a lot of them, Fred, that I could get to rebalance. Uh, some of them did, of course, but, but that, that wasn't uncommon at all. Right. Uh, Paul, I, again, to... I don't think any, any of us, uh, if you had talked to us in uh, the end of February 2009, uh, we would have said, well, uh, stick in there. In a couple of years, things will be great. No. Uh, it, it, the the uh, rebound was much stronger than anyone expected at that time. Oh, for sure. Uh, there's there's no question about that. Paul, you were in this article in the New York Times. It's not very often people get quoted in the New York Times and Washington Post and a lot of the major Chicago Tribune. Uh, tell me about that article and your and what your what you added to it, and kind of what your why they picked up, uh, you know, and wanted to talk to you. So the article is actually about a single mom who paid off a ton of debt and supercharged her savings. So she went from about 100000 in debt to having 500000 saved for retirement and enough to send her daughter to college. And she eventually did have a higher income towards the end of her years, but at the beginning she started at just an entry-level uh, law job. So not, you know, lifestyles of the rich and the famous by any means. And, you know, it's just really a, a story about, you know, how if you set goals and you really commit yourself to those goals, you can really be surprised, you know, what you, uh, what you can achieve over time. So, you know, just to give an example of, of this is uh, her quote. Her name's Takia Anderson, I believe. Um, Anytime I got a raise, a bonus, a refund, I put it toward my debt. Then my daughter's education and then my savings, uh, retirement savings. So that's actually where my advice came in because although uh, Mrs. Anderson was fine, you know, everything worked out, she got her daughter through college and she's doing great, um, I actually would suggest that people save for retirement before they save for their children's education. And that was, that was generally the, that was the gist of my comments is just that, you know, the whole reason of investing in your child's education is to give them that financial leg up in life. And I guess in the worst cases, if you put all your money towards investing in your child and you don't really keep yourself financially independent, you might actually end up dependent on that child and sort of undo the benefits that investing in that education was supposed to provide them in life. So my recommendation is, and I use the uh, example of an airplane, you know, you got to put on your own mask before you, you put on someone else's because if, if you're knocked out, if there's nothing you can do for yourself, you can't help them. You can't help your child. I thought that was, it's good. Like I said, it's, it's, it, 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 I I get a chuckle when you guys get quoted in major newspapers. I guess that's just being a dad. Uh, and Ryan, speaking of uh, U.S. was it U.S. News? U.S. News. Yep. Okay. Twice this you month. You were quoted twice this month. Ta briefly, tell me about the first one. How companies can tie retirement plan contributions to student loan payments? Can you give us a kind of a quick down and dirty on that? Yeah. So the IRS uh, put out, put out a private letter ruling uh, for Abbott Laboratories, I believe, and. Uh, the basis is that uh, for people who are paying back college debt, uh, Abbott, and eventually I think we'll see others will be allowed to do this as well, and the IRS uh, makes a blanket statement ruling, uh, will be allowed to uh, put in contributions to that employee's 401k on their behalf as a match for the amount that the, the employee who's paying back their debt. Uh, so it's a tremendous two-for-one switch, and that's the comment that I had made. Um, it's just that not only are you getting... Uh, 401k funding, you're getting rewarded for just doing what you were expected to do already, and that's pay back your debt. Um, so it's it's a great option for people, and um, I think we'll see it become quite a blanket uh, ruling moving forward. Yeah, sounds about. I mean, I think it's a huge program for the people that really need it most because of my friends that aren't saving materially for, for retirement. 
the vast majority of them, it's because their money is already marked off for student loans. So I think it's great that Abbott and uh, hopefully the industry at large is recognizing that, look, these student loans are the issue that our employees are not contributing to their 401ks and getting the match. So why don't we go ahead and match on the student loan contributions they're making? And I think that is just brilliant. I think it's going to be a way for them to attract key talent. Uh, yeah, can't say enough positive things. Great that it's coming from an Illinois firm. It's also my fiance's employer, so I heard about this a long time ago. I, I couldn't believe it because there wasn't this big news story about it. But as soon as I heard it, I thought, oh, I, I would very easily see a lot of other companies going to that model. Well, it's good. I mean, you know, again, again uh, I was over at Jimmy John's office uh, with how they're dealing with millennials, you know, and I was blown away how kind of on. I think this is just companies, these companies' ways of saying, look, if we want to hire these millennial kids and have their energy and all that, we need to do, we have to, we're, our relationship with them is going to be different than, than a, maybe the past generation. Uh, there's going to be more flexibility. There's going to be more, you know, working from home days. Uh, I was just really impressed when I saw how, how he's, all the desks are standing desks like you guys like, double monitors, just a lot more hip coolness, flexibility that I think the younger generation is looking for. And, uh, and that just seems like one more sensible solution here. I don't want my employees worrying about their own personal finances. If I can help them avoid that. I mean, you can't help everybody, but as a company, you know, if, if you can afford to invest in your your workers in a way that takes some of that financial stress off them. I can't help but think you're going to have a better, you know, better employee out of it. And maybe one that's more loyal uh, in the end. Well, guys, uh, that pretty much wraps it up here. My advice to everybody right now who's looking at the stock market that might be down another 400 points is don't just do something, stand there. And uh, it may seem like a cute little quip, but look, this is just another great time to do nothing and just recognize that this is premium fluctuation and it's part of the hoping to earn premium returns. Paul, we're Or if you're like me in investing, up your contribution. All right. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money. We'll be back in two weeks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On The Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.